Hello and welcome to episode 213 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and today I am joined with uh, my podcast partner from the Wild Arms 3 episodes a little while ago, Joe Padilla. Hello, how's it going? It's going alright. Um, today we're here to talk about Vagrant Story, uh, and I wish I had played more of <laughs> Vagrant Story in the past couple weeks, Joe. Uh, I had some issues with illness and uh, and and uh, busy with work and other things, so I'm only a couple hours in, so I'm afraid you're going to have to carry me this episode. That's alright. I got you. Alright, cool. But anyway, Vagrant Story is a game that we had been floating around as an idea for a while, and, and in part because I was really eager to try it for the first time. I have owned a copy of Vagrant Story for probably 12 years at least I don't I don't even I think when I was um, going crazy on eBay trying to buy every relevant PS1 RPG that was one uh, of that was one casualty in my bank account um, and that this would have been in the mid 2000s sometime uh, but I had never really sat down and tried to play it uh, but I have a vivid memory of when I was in middle school or maybe my first year of high school so early 2000s that uh, one of my friends had this game and it was one of his favorite games and he was trying to explain what was going on to me and another friend that hadn't played it before, and I was completely confused. And like looking back at it, I think he was fighting a lizard man enemy from the in the in the castle basement area in the in the first couple hours. Oh yeah, those guys are tough. Yeah. So like he was trying to explain because he was trying to explain to me what was happening, and I just was completely escaping it. But um, when this game came out in two thousand, I was very very into um square and all of its and all of its rpg oeuvre and trying to play play as many of them as i could uh i i I bought a playstation for the first time in 1999 so this was exactly the right window for me to uh get into it but i didn't buy it until much later and never really tried to get into it on a playthrough on my own until now so uh joe what's your background with vagrant story if any so I this is this is another game like Wild Arms Three that I although it's a little different I didn't know um, about Vagrant Story until probably about a year ago at least by name but when I was younger I remember seeing it the cover somewhere that beautiful uh, Yoshida artwork um, and being just really drawn to it and. I know it might have been in a game store or something, and I was like, what is this? And I just, it just went on in my mind. And then probably about a year ago when hearing about this game, um, I had looked it up and I was like, oh, that was, that was the cover that I was so kind of uh, obsessed with um, when I was a kid. And I was so uh, wondering what it was. So that's, Really, my background with it is just I saw this image when I was a kid, and 15 years later, I discovered what it was. Right, and um, I'm maybe only a little bit more early informed than you on this, because, again, this game sort of escaped me. It it looked and felt baffling to me uh, when I first saw it in, say, 2000 or 2001, but I was aware of it as a square RPG, and I knew I liked those. But uh, one follow-up question, Joe. Have you played Final Fantasy Tactics or Final Fantasy XII before? And then this will be relevant, I promise. Mm-hmm. Yep. I um, 
I know where you're going with this. Um, I have, <laughs> I haven't played Twelve, but yeah, I played Tactics a few uh, a few months ago. The War of the Oh my. version okay. on PSP. So. Oh yeah, that that definitely counts. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so again, you do see where I'm going with this. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, a Vagrant Story was developed by Yasumi Matsuno and a lot of his team. That was, I guess, uh, you would call the former Quest team that worked on Ogre Battle and Tactics Ogre and then was uh, was acquired by Square and then worked on Final Fantasy Tactics. In fact, like the, the first Tactics Ogre game is sometimes even called Final Fantasy Tactics Zero for how similar it is, it is to Final Fantasy Tactics in look and feel. But uh, Vagrant Story, FF12, and FF Tactics are ostensibly set in the same world, uh, usually called Ivalice or even the Ivalice Alliance at times. And I did some background research into this because uh, sometime after seeing being confused by this game for the first time, uh, I was aware that it was an overarching connected series, um, and that made me more interested in it because I adore Final Fantasy Tactics and appreciate FF12. <laughs> uh, with apologies <laughs> to Caitlin, it's not one of my favorites in the series, but doing some background research and uh, this will not surprise you but the discourse around this game has really looked into every possible tie <laughs> into into Ivalice. Vagrant Story isn't exactly tied into the main story of FF Tactics or FF12. Uh it may or may not be set in Ivalice. There's sort of conflicting um interviews and information on that. Uh and it doesn't fit into the timeline neatly in any in any way that I was able to find clearly in uh materials surrounding this game but what what is definitely true is that it's set in a fictional kingdom of valendia and references events and place names in the evil alliance but uh probably isn't canon within that storyline uh you could even call the evil raid in final fantasy 14 a similar thing it's like it, there's evil connections and place names in common but it's not in that story proper uh, i think what they were trying to do here was they wanted a story with a gothic setting um and well not a gothic setting but more like a gothic atmosphere set in a uh in a medieval castle world uh world of castles and cathedrals like ff tactics but they wanted to ha- capture the fantasy of like a political operator and like like sort of a secret agent instead of a commander of armies the way the the way that you feel in in Final Fantasy Tactics or Tactics Ogre. So Vagrant Story has Evilise connections is not Evilise proper definitely weird and unique feeling among Square RPGs of the 2000s. Absolutely, and it, it's kind of hard to place it because most of the um, most of the plot, which we'll go into later, um, takes place within as the span of a day. So it's like it's it's hard, it's difficult to know where exactly that could slot in in any sort of Evilice history because it's just a twenty four hour stretch basically. And it's, it's set in the same uh, the same walled city as well, right? Yeah, uh, Le Mans. Le- I'm not very good with French, but I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, uh, I'm okay with French, so I uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's a uh, Le Monde. Le Monde. Okay. Yeah, Monde. Because <laughs> remember, um, the last word in a, in every the last letter in every French word, unless it's a vowel or C, F, R, and L, is basically always silent. So the so gotcha. the so the D would be pronounced, but the E wouldn't. So Le Monde. 
Yeah. Uh, if they drop the A in Leia, that it would look it would be Le Monde, which is the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, like it does represent a. I'm um, sorry, it does resemble a like French Bastille city. Um, yeah. Which which twenty years later makes me think of East Nine, but uh, it entirely within one city, entirely taking place in one day. This is not a world-spanning dungeon town, dungeon town RPG, and I mentioned that it uh, it fulfills a the fantasy of like being a secret agent in a way, uh, and I mean that in two ways. First of all, this is basically a solo game. Um, you're controlling Ashley Riot, who is a risk breaker, which is a great combination of two English words. <laughs> um, and uh, and Ashley is basic is the only character you're controlling the entire game, and is a solo operator uh, as a risk breaker. He represents the um, the VKP, which I forget what that stands for. Uh, it, it's it's Valendia something. It's uh, Valendia Knights of. Something. Valendia Knights of the Peace. I just, I just yes. found, I just found it. Uh, so, like he and, and the VKP um, represent sort of uh, large interests within uh, within Leomond and, and within Valendia. Valendia being the larger region, I think. And uh, basically, the very first scene of the game, um, there's sort of a council sitting around a table telling Ashley what his mission is and uh there's people that represent the templars which are like uh, which are like the knight ar- the military arm of the church and the church proper and I think local government so mm-hmm. the VKP are like a special task force or a, a like a, a maybe even an espionage force to do um to do very high risk even <laughs> or like sort of dirty work for um for those uh, large interests, which again is like a, a an RPG an RPG where you're like a secret agent working behind the scenes with a game that has political machinations like Final Fantasy Tactics, which is a game that has a lot of like a lot of politics going on in the in the ma- in the text of the story and in the background of the story, and, and I think that's cool. Like they wanted a setting like Final Fantasy Tactics, but with uh, and with sort of the politics and the atmosphere atmosphere of Final Fantasy Tactics, but instead of being a commander of armies, you're a behind the scenes secret agent. I think I think that, and I, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I think that fantasy or that premise is really cool. Like uh, if you um, if you uh, sort of decide to suspend disbelief enough and invest yourself in the world early on in this game, Va- Vagrant Story is like feels cool from the beginning. It's it's extreme. I feel like it's extremely engrossing. Um, I feel just very kind of um, very uh, enthralled by this world that's been built. Even even though, um, yeah, as you said, it's not you know going town to town, um, dungeon to dungeon. It's got this woof, this gothic claustrophobia to it that I just I think is fantastic. Yeah, and. Uh... Then you become less engrossed the moment that you start a fight. <laughs> uh, but and we will get into the combat, into the story. But I want to I want to keep talking around some of the stuff surrounding this game first. Uh, this was a little bit of an awkward time uh, visually for video games, and I mean every genre of video games. It came out in two thousand, and so it was still using PlayStation polygons. But I mean N sixty four and PlayStation polygons have not aged great. Uh, because you'll have you sort of have shape without text without uh, texture, uh, 
and and sometimes less than sophisticated uh uh you know like like uh angles and technology try really trying to punch above their weight um i remember thinking this game looked amazing in 2000 but now it's like uh j- just just like you know the lack of detail on people's faces um sort of you know gives you a handsomest guy in the room kind of vibe <laughs> that is that is true but i mean but for the time though i mean when you're comparing this to other games from that time in terms of the express the expressiveness of the faces and the fact that um you know all the other uh square games at this time were either using you know 2D characters with 3D backgrounds or 3D characters with 2D backgrounds yep. and this one's a fully 3D character and uh, a fully 3D environment um and it's pretty remarkable um yeah, and uh, talking about other Square games with 2D on 3D or 3D on 2D, <laughs> um, 2000 was a really busy, interesting year for Square. Uh, they had, <laughs> they were for over a year they had been advertising um, the summer of 2000 as the summer of adventure, and they came out with something like four RPGs in the summer of 2000, and then another four in like the in winter spring before then. Um, <laughs> Vagrant Story came out in. Uh, May of 2000 in North America, and in that following summer, so I'm not sure if you count Vagrant Story as being part of the Summer of Adventure or not, but then within the next three or four months afterwards in North America, Chrono Cross, Legend of Mana, Final Fantasy IX, and Threads of Fate all came out. And I think think Front Mission 3 and a couple other games that I'm forgetting were also released in that window, sort of spring-summer 2000, which is just makes for a very dense year of some diverse and weird games. And uh, uh, Legend of Mana is one of those 2D sprites on a 3D background games you mentioned. And Final Fantasy IX is one of those uh, 3D sprites on a, uh, or, or 3D models on a 2D background <laughs> games that you mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, and in fact, I, I think that the, the sort of, uh, the, um, the, the, the hand-drawn backgrounds in FF9 are among the prettiest I ever remember in, uh, in sort of this era. So this, was, this game came out at a busy time, and I was definitely more focused on Chrono Cross and FF9 in 2000, which is part of why I, I sort of skipped over this game um, during its release window. But uh, it, it, has, it uses um, 3D models that looked great in 2000, and it and uh, the sort of the, like the dark castles and and basements and catacombs do give you a a claustrophobic um, oppressed feeling that it was effective. I mean, at times this game feels like you're moving around in a horror game, especially when you're doing terrible crate pushing puzzles. Some of it has not aged great. Like I, I mentioned, the, the the textures in certain areas, especially people's faces, and. Uh, I don't love how Ashley and uh, really all of the characters have very broad shoulders and small waists because, because they, they want to show body definition, but, they, but just end up looking a little bit like, you know, a- action figures at, at, it, at unusual proportions when you could tell they were going for some level of, of, uh, of, of photorealism for, um, for, for, you know, character movement and, and uh, how the characters look, but don't really hit the mark. Uh, Vagrant Story is a really weird one, and uh, like I mentioned, that Risk Breaker was a was a weird combination of two English words. Vagrant Story really felt like they went into a Japanese English dictionary and thesaurus to come up with two nouns that sound cool next to each other. Yeah, I'm I'm really 
trying to figure out where exactly Vagrant is is part of this game. I mean, there's no there's no mention of Ashley Riots uh, being homeless or or anything of. of I think um, not really, but I think they wanted although, to. Hmm. I, I think they wanted to come up with a word that uh, evoked um, Ashley's uh, loner status. Like 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 mm-hmm. not not loneliness, but sort of like operating as a uh, as a solo actor. Yeah, is is my is my guess because I, I've mentioned espionage and I've definitely mentioned RPGs. I, it's kind of hard to pin down a single genre on Vagrant Story. It um it is an action role playing game with uh, that does pause the action at times. But like I mean I I don't I don't I hesitate to call it an action RPG or a turn based RPG. Because it it really blends elements of both, and um, uh, it, it, and I I read in one article in one I don't know if it was a Wikia article or a uh, or a story on the game. At, at one point, they were intending this to be a party based game with more than one character or at least AI companions for Ashley, but uh, they they never they weren't able to implement it how they wanted to. So it is basically a solo game from start to finish. But uh, I mean, you, you move from a third pres- person perspective with a fixed camera, and um, and the, and then you switch between uh, first. You can switch into first person perspective um, when you press start, and uh, during action that you sort of pause to fo- uh, to focus um, to focus on enemies for attacking. Uh, <laughs> this will take it'll take a while to explain this uh, battle system in complete in completion, but let's at least give a a full effort, a, a full faith effort here. Um, like like when when you f- when you first had to enter battle mode and target enemies, which I think is that which I think is against three soldiers, like right at the beginning of the game when he when he's sneaking mm-hmm. into the duke's into the duke's manor. Mm-hmm. Um, like what were your early impressions in on the battle system and? Uh, as it got more complicated, how did your opinion change? Because I'm, I'm, I'm certain that you start to develop feelings about this battle system. You certainly do. Um, <laughs> I So at first I was deeply confused. Um, this battle system is very unique. I don't think I've really seen anything quite like it. Like, I think it has some, some similarities to Chrono Cross, but not really. Um, so at first I was deeply confused by what exactly I was supposed to be doing. Um, as the game's gone on though, I actually like the combat quite a bit. Um, it develops this really f- kind of fun rhythm of chaining attacks and balancing out risk. And it's, it's a really fascinating system and it's sometimes really frustrating and you're not sure why exactly things aren't going your way in combat, but the ambition that they were seeking out with this, I think something to be applauded at least. Um, and I'm actually having some fun with it. So ambitious is definitely an appropriate (laughs) adjective for this battle system. Um, I, I haven't really hit that point yet. I'm still struggling almost every encounter, but but I can see how like it, sort of once you have maybe more DP and PP and uh, and sort of more developed weapons at your disposal, it probably gets better. Um, I, I should mention I am using a guide for this game for the most part because I'm just 
terrified of being able to un- to not finish it in time, like what happened with Wild Arms uh, two weeks up uh, two months ago. And it felt like the guide was being defensive, <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or or even like preemptively apologizing uh, when when it was explaining uh, the battle system, like in in sort of a it, it's it, it feels bad now, but it won't be so bad later kind of <laughs> kind of tone. Um, <laughs> There's a lot going on here. There's a system of risk, which you mentioned, where basically uh, Ashley's risk increases with every action, whether you uh, um, defend or land a hit or uh, or a trigger a trap or anything. Basically, risk is always increasing with your actions, and as your risk increases, uh, your your hit rate lowers and you take more damage. It's a it, it basically it it uh, motivates you to end. Um, encounters decisively as, as and as quickly as you can, so your risk doesn't get so high that it uh, that it cripples you. And there's also a system of chain attacks, which allow you to end to deal a lot of damage at once and end ga- uh, battles quickly without your uh, your risk getting your risk getting out of control. And um, now I, I'm not totally sure about this, but the, the best way to reduce risk is that there's a couple items that'll do that. But also you can just sort of wait. <laughs> Yeah, if you keep your weapon out, it goes down pretty slowly. But if you sheath your weapon and just kind of run around <laughs> for a little bit, um, it goes down pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, I, I was, um, you know, in some early fights, I would struggle, and my risk seemed to be uh, unsustainably high. So I would sheath my weapon and then, you know, go and go and make a sandwich or something. Because it seems that waiting between encounters to reduce your risk and heal yourself a little bit is um is tedious but uh effective to a degree and uh and outside of risk we should mention there like you when you uh sheath and unsheath your weapon you're sort of going from uh from movement mode or like normal mode into battle mode and when you uh when your weapon's unsheathed a sort of a um like a 360 sphere of range based on your weapon appears and allows you to uh, target nearby enemies and even the parts of nearby enemies. Like like whether you uh, attack an enemy's um, body or hand or head, it will you know uh, have different properties and different and different levels of effectiveness. And all of these uh, like attacking and enemy type and affinities are all taken into account. What kind of weapon you're using, where you're attacking the enemy, the elemental affinity of your weapon and the enemy, and the type of enemy it is, because I, I forget, there's six or seven enemy types that include, like, ghost and dragon and human. Mm-hmm. And all of those factors factor into how effective your attack is. And, uh, again, uh, I hope I'm not repeating myself too much, this game layers so many systems on top of systems in its combat that, I, I don't know, like, it, it, it was definitely ambitious but I think maybe a little bit overexcited. Like, I'm imagining a developer in some planning meeting going, and there'll be weapon types and enemy types and weapon affinities and tar- and body parts targeting. And, like, like, they just threw so much junk into this battle system with, uh, like, with, with a plum that I, I felt like it got in the way of me understanding the combat and enjoying the combat, at least very early on. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was I was not having too much fun with it early on, and this might be a system that people just don't really get into. You know, with um, I think a lot of this is probably Matsuno's doing because with 
tactics, um, I've kind of heard that he was going a little overboard with um, with even more systems and tactics. And then Hiroyuki Ito was the battle planner, and he was like, okay, I want to make this fun. It's going to be fun, and you're going to like it. <laughs> um, and I don't think he really had that for this game. So there are just many, many systems in this game um, that can be kind of alienating. But at least there's no Zodiac signs. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the first time I played FF Tactics, I basically completely ignored Zodiac signs, which you can do, but mm-hmm. it'll... Uh, but, I mean, again, your sign versus the enemy's Zodiac sign is a difference between, you know, dealing 30% more or 30% less damage in FF Tactics. And for Vagrant Story, it has all these layered enemy-type elemental affinity systems, but I don't feel like you can ignore them like uh, like you can Zodiac signs in FF Tactics because if you're attacking something inefficiently or don't have the appropriate weapon or element for a battle situation, you'll just be dealing one damage over and over until you're... Until either you or the enemy is grinded into a pulp. Because yep. <laughs> uh, th- there's also weapon customization in this game. Like, uh, you, you can find, a say, a sword or a mace and, um, and customize it a little bit, but the more you attack with it and, uh, and the more you attack with a certain, uh, with a certain affinity, y- the elemental affinity of the weapon will, in- will increase and its opposite affinity will decrease. So like so if you uh I mean let's see you atta- I'm you, you attack a bunch of fire enemies in a row the fire affinity of your weapon will increase significantly and its water affinity will decrease and if you don't pay attention to that you could be in some terrible situation where you have no good weapons to attack an earth affinity enemy or uh um or or, or similar situations like that it, it's you have to balance and manage so many different things that I was trying to you know keep my edged weapons attacking humans and and beasts and my blunt weapons attacking uh undead and so on and and you know the affinities of those would sort of basically fit a pattern and that seems to be working okay for me so far but if you aren't aware of all of those things i mentioned elemental affinity weapon type enemy type uh customizing your weapons with the proper grips and and uh and blades or uh, mace heads as, as as it were if you aren't paying attention to all of those things, you could be really crippled or worked into a bad corner with uh, with how you're building Ashley and your arsenal. Yeah, I'm currently in kind of one of those spots right now where I'm pretty f- decently far into the game and I'm at a boss where I'm only doing a few damage, but it's a similar type boss to one that I was doing you know, pretty good damage to before. So I'm a little confused as to what that is. So uh, I just went to a forge and made a big, massive axe that I named the Ball Buster, and I'm going <laughs> to go back in and see what happens with that. I have a sword that I named Swordy McSwordface, but I couldn't I, <laughs> but, I, but I couldn't fit it all the way, so I had to remove a couple of vowels to, to fit an appropriately understandable swordy mcsword face in there and and a mace and i mace that i named uh, jack johnson uh so and so far swordy mcsword face and jack johnson are doing okay for me but uh like i i um at, like at times you will find an enemy that you don't have the exactly the right kind of weapon to deal with 
and that is when you have to, you know, go back to a forge and figure things out. And because there's so many things to consider in the combat in this game, um, it, it gets really cumbersome. And and I and I think like thinking about how defensive this guide that I'm reading is uh, is like like if you know what to anticipate in advance and build your arsenal a certain way, it, it can't this uh, the combat can go more quickly. But you, you're really I think the player is at odds with the combat more so than the combat allowing the player to be at odds with enemies. Like, I, I feel like I'm not only wrestling with enemies, I'm wrestling with the combat system in general. And it's, it, it, sometimes in RPGs, the combat system is a fun puzzle to figure out. And, uh, but in this time, it, it, feels, it feels like an obstacle. And um, in RPGs that I really like, the, the combat feels fast and fluid, and it feels like I'm powerful and, uh, and, and coming up with good combinations or, or, uh, or even exploitative strategies. But this, this one feels like I, like I have to figure out the combat to do anything. And, uh, and uh, in, instead of fighting the enemies, I'm fighting the systems. Am, am I being unfair, or, uh, I'm, or, or is, this, is this combat as... Uh, bothersome as I'm worried it might be later. Oh no, you were being completely fair. Um, I went to a forge when I was playing a couple of days ago um, and somehow combined two axes and got a crossbow. So yeah, it, okay. it's, not, hmm. it's not terribly um, it's not terribly sensical at times. Um, and the, the combat itself can be um, pretty tedious. Like I spent like a half hour fighting a dragon early on in the game, which was not fun at all. Um, what I see is a big problem with it is that you, because the combat can be so slow and things can be spread out so much, you go for long stretches without getting bits of the story, which is what I most want to see out of the game. Yeah, speaking of not getting to bits of the story, we have not gone beyond the first cutscene in about 30 minutes of recording time. <laughs> well, well, um, we'll, we'll get to it, but, but we got we got to yeah. stick to it for a minute. Yeah, well, well part of it is that um, there was an interview with Matsuno where he said that they had to cut like 50% of the uh, scenario for this, uh, for the game. And there really isn't a whole lot of, there's a whole lot to think about and there's a whole lot to chew on, but in terms of actual uh, story and cutscenes, there really isn't that much in this game. And so I think they really could have put in more of the story and taken some of the combat out. Because at the point I'm at, it's been like, it's been a few hours since I've seen a cutscene or anything that's advancing the story besides environmental storytelling. Yeah, I I think this was maybe intended to be part one of a multi-part story, because mm-hmm. like like when you even hit the opening sort of cutscenes, or maybe this was a detail in a manual or something. It said, uh, "Vagrant story, the Phantom Pain, prelude to story of the Wanderer." Like. Mm-hmm. Well, like it, it suggests that um, the Ashley Riot story is a sort of a grander thing, and this one-day event is sort of what is sort of what launches Ashley into a larger adventure. But we never get that larger adventure. No, we we do not. We might we might be getting it with with unsung story, which and I don't know if you've looked into that at all, but 
Wait, is that that isn't the one that Matsuno was involved with? That was a uh, a failed Kickstarter, was it? S- something like that, but it's the the official the official word on it is that it's still in development and it's coming out in 2020. But in terms of that actually being reality, I'm not sure. Um, I believe no. Um, the, this is the one I was thinking of. I I, I was doing some background googling. Um, there was a uh, it was a 2014 Kickstarter that got over half a million dollars in contributions, but then went uh, basically went radio silent for a couple years, and uh, then and then in 2016, uh, the developer Playdeck announced that development had been stopped. Uh, they had sort of re uh, refocused development and it even changed genres. And it, and it looks like it is going to. It, they are planning to release it in 2020, but it's unclear, like what, uh, like how much um, yeah, Matsuno and Yoshida and that crew is involved, and unclear exactly what the focus of the game is anymore. But it, it was a Kickstarter disaster in the 2014-2016 range that we are unclear on what its current status is. But you think this might be a like a, a serious new attempt to uh, to tell this story again or continue the story? It, I mean, it could be. I mean, the name the name definitely draws it, the name definitely draws you to it, and the fact that in terms of like the core team of um, Matsuno Matsuno's there in some capacity, Yoshida's mm-hmm. there in some capacity. I don't know about Sakimoto, uh, who did the sound for this. Yeah, no, Sakimoto's attached to Unsung Story as well. Oh, he is? Yeah. Or, so, or, or, or I mean, at least at least from early information. I, 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 I don't know anything about Unsung Story other than <laughs> uh, the controversy surrounding the crowdfunding. I don't think anyone does, really. <laughs> so it's, it's, very, it's very much a... Uh, it's very much unknown, but... Um, I would like to see the continuation of this story or something alongside it. Um, something something else with the story that I noticed is the cinematography during the cutscenes. Yes, is really strong. Um, like, I I think that's the most forward thinking part of the entire visual presentation of Vagrant Story. Like um, in the opening cutscenes, like you'll see. Having action taking place in the foreground, main main plane, and background, with with like like rotating around spots, or uh, like like the the opening credits interspersed with action, um, with uh, Ashley sneaking into the uh, in, into the, the into the castle gates. It's there is real thought put into the camera work and cinematography. And when you run into Sydney for the first time, like the camera sort of languishes over him. In, in in a way that's like that's like this is this is better than the camera zooming over Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII. They they really put oh, yeah. thought into the into you know ca- like into camera positioning and cinematography for this game, which is almost comical with this s- smart camera work over these <laughs> year two thousand polygons. <laughs> True, <laughs> S- but... saying it feels wasted is too is too harsh, but like it it's a it's a uh, you know it's a juxtaposition. <laughs> Yeah, it def it definitely is, but you know, from but I can't think of a game released before this or around its time that had this type of cinematic sweep to it. Um it's pretty it's pretty interesting. I mean, I would let's see, this is it, it, say around 2000. Uh I'm struggling as well. Like I'd have to enter 
I don't know, maybe Metal Gear Solid 2 territory. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, like, the most dramatic best parts of a Final Fantasy IX. I remember being sort of surprised at how uh, weird the character models looked, and then also simultaneously surprised at how smart and cool the camera movement is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't love the fixed camera perspective when you're walking around a... Uh, you know, a wine cellar in the castle basement or something. But that's that's a problem that I've had with video game cameras basically from the introduction of 3D to the present day. So I can't <laughs> so I can't get too upset about that for a two thousand game, having a sometimes awkward uh action camera. True. But maybe we should start talking about the story about this game uh, about thirty five minutes into the podcast. <laughs> um you start out with uh, that meeting of the minds I mentioned, where basically some uh, big wigs are instructing Ashley on his uh, on his mission, which is to sneak into uh, the Duke's estate in Leamond, where uh, where there's a hostage situation taking place, where a uh, a cult leader has the entire household taken hostage, but it appears that the Duke, whose household it is is not present and might even be a supporter of the cult. So, uh, like, right away, you're seeing, um, you, like, you know, secret organization, Ashley is a risk-breaker, acting uh, as, like, a solo agent to thwart this um, hostage situation, and there's cults with um, working against a more mainstream church, and the situation is trying to be diffused secretly. So it gives you this really cool uh, espionage-flavored action um in a uh a gothic flavored city just just in the first five minutes of the game ashley sneaks in takes out some uh some soldiers who are threatening to kill all the hostages and pretty soon encounters uh several big players in a row yeah so so he runs into uh runs into sydney sydney losterall is that How's that sounding? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it would be lo- it looks like Lost Tarot, but I think it, if mm-hmm. it was totally French, it would be probably Los Tarot. Los Tarot. Uh, yeah, but uh, <laughs> but I really don't know what um, like what kind of language inflection they're going for this one. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I'm <laughs> I speak I speak English and and I come from knowing a little bit of Spanish, um, so that's so. French isn't really my strong suit, so apologies for any mispronounced words. But yeah, runs into Sydney. <laughs> runs into Sydney, who is this kind of wiry, bare-chested, mechanical hands cult leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could talk a lot about the fashion choices in this game too. I, I'm I'm surprised that uh, at the level of covering up, Ashley does too. He <laughs> uh, he wears what appears to be like. A shirt that is kind of like a tube top, because he has his shoulders, arms, and upper chest all exposed. I, I, I don't even I don't even know where this is going uh, with the, with the fashion oh choices in this game. But the but it, yeah, um, Sydney definitely a major player. Uh, feels like a major antagonist from uh, from the early going on, but I'm not I'm not exactly sure if he's the really the final antagonist or the final boss. But definitely makes an early impression visually absolutely absolutely he i mean he just seems he just seems to be kind of oozing uh instilling fear in you there's something that's kind of 
um, surreal about him, um, which I think is really fascinating and can kind of continues on. He's very, uh, mysterious. Yeah. And he's the leader of a cult, which, um, feels evil at the beginning i'm not sure if maybe maybe the cult is okay and the church is the real villain at the end because i mean this is a late 90s early 2000s rpg after all uh but there's there's also a uh um a a, a another a woman named uh Callo who is who is sort of uh introduces ashley and like they make they make uh they make contact at the beginning of the game and she gives him some intel to work on and she gets captured very very early uh and there's also a um, a a sort of a knight's captain named Gildenstern and another risk breaker named Rosencrantz, which is you know um, for the Shakespeare fans out there a nice a nice wink. Who are also trying to um, stop Sydney. These characters are all sort of um, having parallel motives, but I, I don't think they are intended to work well together. You know, in in a lot of games, you have this sort of binary. You know, these are the good guys; these are the bad guys. Um, this is really murky stuff. <laughs> as, as far as I am into this game, I still, I still don't uh, really know where my sympathies lie or uh, what characters are reliable, which ones are absolutely lying through their teeth. These, they're, they don't get a whole lot of time because as we said that uh, the scenario was cut down quite a bit. Um, but they don't really need a whole lot of time to kind of worm their way into your brain. They're very, uh, they're very interesting characters. Yeah, and I, um, I'm still pretty early, so I definitely haven't encountered all of the players yet. But what starts out as sort of political intrigue, I don't think it's, it, it doesn't seem like it's going to spiral out of control into world-threatening stakes. But it, but it definitely feels like serious shit is going down in Leamond, and and Ashley sort of, from a mission that he didn't necessarily ask for, is thrust into the middle of it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that it does kind of stay, somewhat contained in small stakes, because that was, I really, I really like Final Fantasy Tactics, but I hmm. wasn't as thrilled about, um, you know the introductions of the demons and such in there. It, I, I mean, it, it kind of took this more political story and, uh, and made it a bit more, uh, bit more fantastical than I liked. I was kind of appreciating the, the, the small stakes political intrigue before it. Yeah. Um, that part of Final Fantasy Tactics feels more grounded than the than a lot of the fourth act of Final Fantasy Tactics. At the risk of turning this into another Final Fantasy Tactics podcast, <laughs> I, I say another because we did three of them in 2015. Uh, it starts out as like you um, being caught into a side conflict, into a war, and ends up with Ramza being a player in the war and uh, trying to and his uh, former friend Delita manipulating both sides politically while rescuing a princess who's a political pawn between the multiple sides like that part is much more interesting than um than a possible takeover from a secret organization summoning demons um in fact that secret organization is the temple temple knights or templars which again is one uh one element 
to one political element in Vagrant Story, which makes me wonder if uh, if Vagrant Story is, co- is connected to other Evil East games in that way. But so, I mean, I, I think there's value in a big, huge story with big stakes, and also value in a story that feels more grounded and more and more sort of true to its tone throughout. And I would be disappointed if Vagrant Story ends with every major character besides actually turning into a demon boss battle in the la- in the la- final act. Uh, and it may yet go that way. I, I truly don't know. I haven't been spoiled to uh, um, much of the details of Vagrant Story. But where we are now with Ashley um, sort of uh, pursuing these these cult the, these cult villains and um, trying to at first trying to defuse a hostage situation and then sort of I think not hunting them down exactly, but at least trying to thwart what the cult is doing. Is is a good enough introduction that I am interested in continuing. And uh, Ashley, maybe this is just a symptom of being a late '90s, early 2000s hero. Is uh, I don't want to call him emo, but he's a little bit aloof. He's um, he has a sort of an "I work alone" kind of tone to him, and it's part of why he's uh, he's a little bit callous to callow <laughs> early in the game. Uh, and um, and he also is he's he's not prepared to bring her into battle because he mentions that she is, uh, no combat experience. So it's, so he's kind of like the being like the grizzled veteran who has to watch over the rookie. Yeah. Uh, this again, heavily suggests, uh, that article I read that, um, that, that said vagrant story was intended to be a game with multiple characters or at least AI companions for Ashley, but then they event they eventually abandoned that. Like Callow has, uh, you know, early suggestions of being a gal Friday, but it never really happens. Yeah. And they definitely, they definitely moved far away from that. Cause she's kind of the only one who feels like she could be a party member, um, in the game. I thought maybe that knight captain, uh, what's his name, uh, Gildenstern, f- felt like, felt like he could be a character like that. Like they they clash early on, but maybe if their uh, goals aligned later, he would he would be a party member later. Like, uh, they, but they these characters only give me feelings like that without it actually happening. Because again, it, this is a solo RPG with a strange combination of rhythm gameplay and turn based action uh, when you when you enter combat, but. At the very least, we're, I mean, we're we're really jumping all over the place with this story. Like, I, I think that the setting and tone is really intriguing, and the early uh, story and character moments are also intriguing. But the game is hamstrung a little bit by 3D awkwardness and this ca- and this combat. Um, but I, I don't dislike it. Like, I'm I'm struggling with the combat a little bit, but. Joe, I think you mentioned this to me off air, but uh, this game is not a uh, a sixty hour epic. It's probably beatable in the thirty to thirty five hour range. Yeah, no, it's it's not too long. Uh, you're probably, not going to probably you're faster. Not going to lose your your entire uh, month to it. It probably faster than thirty hours if you know what you're doing, unlike you or I. But mm-hmm. yeah, because I, I definitely don't know what I'm doing in this game. <laughs> Again, I, I just like even with some regular encounters, like against lizard men and that early dragon boss, I was just really struggling and wondering if I would actually ever be able to feel to beat this game. Did, did, was there a single encounter, whether it's a boss battle or a, or just in a a more normal battle, that you just really struggled with that 
made you sort of <laughs> doubt your ability to continue? Oh yeah, that's um, boss battle that I mentioned versus the dragon that took like half hour. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt like you know hitting my skull into a wall because <laughs> that's what it felt like I was doing in the game. Um, yeah, it once once I got through that, it was kind of like a okay, I need to pay a bit more attention to crafting and try to figure out this game and try to have Ashley function like a Swiss, you know, a Swiss army knife of just a bunch of weapons on him that can take on any enemy. Um, it, but, but I think if you, if you get into it a bit, I think it will start clicking with you, but it will take some time. And, and also just trying to find your way around can be kind of difficult too the map takes some getting used to, but once you get the hang of the map, it's a really good map. <laughs> yeah, um, I switch between the map view and the main view often because I I would sort of lose myself in the background sometimes if if the if you know the fixed camera third person view got a little got a little weird. You you understand what I mean by sort of getting lost in the screen a little bit? Oh yeah, yeah. It, so so the map view is a very very good friend. In, uh, in in vagrant story and it's and it's a struggle early on but i'm encouraged that uh you say it'll it'll it, it gets easier as it, as it goes on with maybe just a couple stumbling blocks here and there because again this is cool like a like, like you, you can tell they're trying to create a setting like that of ff12 or ff tactics but with a like a, a different kind of game and a different kind of character than than uh you know than a uh a disgraced noble leading a uh, ragtag band of uh of soldiers or a city boy who dreams of becoming a sky pirate it's a it, ashley's story is not like von's story or ramza's story at all but this was a uh, a setting that matsuno has explored and continued to explore basically his whole career with square which has lasted for over 20 years right now and if this game uh, makes me appreciate the Ivalice raids in Final Fantasy XIV more, then absolutely, I, I welcome it. Yeah. One one thing as well with the... Have you been looking at the, the names of the rooms that you walk into? Oh, um... Some, yeah. Do, do you have any standouts? Because like, I, I think I think you see them... You see the room, the name of the room you're in when you go to the main menu or into the map view right yeah it's um i don't have any particular standouts uh off the top of my head but because each room in this game and there are a lot of rooms <laughs> um each one of them is named and i think it's a really cool uh dynamic that they have kind of they had to sacrifice having a less connected world by having these kind of small rooms to hold it all together yeah like like sort uh, of like every segment has its own name. Uh, mm -hmm. Like when you go into the mines, I know there's like Desire's Passage, then Crossing of Blood, then Abandoned yeah. Cat's oh, Paw. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like each of these feels like a cool name of like a boss room in a Diablo game, except it's every single room in the game. Yeah, all of them. It's just like, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that they had, but they're just really interesting and... 
um, kind of give you a bit more to the story. And some of them are just downright terrifying. Like there's, there's some that there's some that allude to um, just kind of the, the droll, terrible, almost slave labor that they have. Yeah. The, um, uh, this city Leia Monde is sort of, uh, has a lot of cool, beautiful architecture on the outside, but then there, in the subsurface, there's mines and catacombs that were clearly hewed out by by slave labor. Like they're like the entire city is a beautiful veneer covering a dark underbelly, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the setting that you're exploring as uh, Ashley, because you're sneaking around the underbelly of the city a lot, evokes that. And I mentioned earlier, sometimes this feels like a horror game. From uh, just just from the oppressive atmosphere and the dark corridors and the fixed th- and the fixed third person camera, and the and, and the challenging encounters that sometimes feel hopeless. Like <laughs> this game feels more like a horror game than basically any other Square Enix Square or Square, Square Enix game to my memory. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little Resident Evil in and some it, way, but a lot more um, a lot more kind of terrifying and and i i don't know if i mentioned this in the podcast or uh or not because it's a topic i avoid i don't love horror video games but Mm -hmm. but i think that's because horror games sort of take pride in taking control out of the player's hands and uh and, and want the player to feel endangered or oppressed and that's rarely a feeling i go to i i i avoid i don't love a lot of horror films either for basically the same reason like i i i don't want the feelings horror gives me a lot of the time so at, so getting a horror vibe from Va- vagrant story early on made me think oh i don't know if i'm gonna enjoy this oh boy <laughs> but, but but again that's a personal preference that is that is shared by very few people I'm just, I'm just i'm just not a horror guy a lot of the time that's fair and i think a lot of the the horror elements and the room names um a lot of it can be uh chalked up with uh, Alexander O. Smith's localization. Oh yeah, he's a he's a brilliant localizer. Is he is, yeah. he, is he still working today? Because I I've, I haven't seen his name popped up pop um, around recently. But he, but he last worked. Mm, I feel like he did some things recently. I can't remember. His Wikipedia page is probably worth looking up. But I just think that localization oh, yeah. has gotten so much better in the past in the past decade or so, probably because of like localization pioneers like him like now we have people like our mutual friend Derek Heemsbergen a uh, shout out to Derek who was one of the localization coordinators on the recent Doraemon story of season game story of seasons game uh people th- that grew up appreciating good localization and maybe even hero worshiping people like Alexander O Smith a little bit are now doing really good localization work so now, now I think it's the best time ever to be playing translated uh games from Japanese creators now but uh but as maybe the one of the very small number of celebrity localizers of that era, uh, uh, Smith has done a lot of incredible work, and that includes this game. Like the, the dialogue and and place names in Vagrant Story are really cool. Like it, it's um even the dialogue just in the very beginning of the game where they're introducing Ashley and all these characters and all this and all this sort of palace intrigue, it, the 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 good translated dialogue helps. It totally does. Yeah. It's great. It's a great localization. And I'm, I love reading. I love reading this game, essentially. And I also like how, um, the, the font is a little unusual. It almost looks like script on a parchment. 
but uh, but yeah. but but not in a way that's uh that's ugly or gets in the way of enjoying the dialogue and um and, and they did there's a very concerted e- effort to time the speech bubbles and the movement of the dialogue with uh you know the movements of the character models there's no voice acting in this game i think right right is there more nope. than i'm missing yeah yep no voice acting yeah there's no voice acting in this game but just the timing of the dialogue makes it feel like feel like a, just a very well drawn comic strip the way that they match dialogue with action very smartly yeah it's a little little alan moore esque in some ways <laughs> Yeah, especially well. I mean, the thing, the the brilliant thing about Alan Moore's best works, like you know, your your Watchmen's and your For the Man Who Has Everything's, <laughs> is is he's really good at balancing expository text with dialogue and ma- and um, like 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 a lot of, for example, a lot of the comic Watchmen is taught is uh, told in newspaper clippings, and like television interviews interspersed over action happening elsewhere. It's like um, Alan Moore is a brilliant comic storyteller. And Vagrant Story, I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't want to compare it to Alan Moore exactly, but it just, it's, even though there's no voice acting, which feels, um, you know, not unforgivable, but it feels like a game of its time in that way. But it, the way it matches dialogue with action, and the way the smart camera work communicates this action dramatically, just makes it feel, it, it feels like good uh, storytelling and good dialogue in a way that is not always true of RPGs of the 2000s. If I'm talking about, like, Watchmen panel work, uh, then maybe we're near the end of the episode. Uh, I think in the part two, uh, when, I'm, uh, when I'm hopefully uh, completed this game, we'll be able to talk about the, the story more in depth, especially the end game, because I definitely want to figure out what happens to Sidney and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to see if it's, uh, you know, if they end up... Uh, helpful companions like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Lion King, which I'm pretty sure are supposed to be Timon and Pumbaa, or if we end like Tom Stoppard and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, there, there's a lot going on in Vagrant Story, and I've barely touched it, but hopefully uh, when you, we see, when we uh, are talking again next week, Joe, uh, we'll be able to talk about the end game in greater detail. But for now, I think we're near the end of the episode. Uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us in this journey into the early part of Vagrant Story, where there was... I mean, it sounded like we were complaining about the about the action and the weirdness of Vagrant Story a little bit, Joe, but I don't, I don't think there's really hate in either of our hearts right now. This is a cool, intriguing game that just has some obstacles uh, in, in, its, in its combat and presentation. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I hope it didn't come off that... <laughs> that I was hating on this game because I think this game is fantastic. I'm really loving this game. Um, kind of warts and frustrations and all. I'm probably a little bit more frustrated than you because I'm not ready to use the L word yet. I, uh, <laughs> but I'm extremely intrigued and, and, and I really want to like this game. But from this game's reputation and from what you've told me, Joe, I'm definitely excited to continue because this is this is a cool game with a lot of promise but i'm really uncertain on how i feel about it right now and i i know that um this podcast has even gotten complaints from readers for being overly negative especially uh, especially for the first year or two of us being around and so i i, I always want to balance criticism with positivity when i am when i'm talking about a game because it's it's uh i i think that um it's reductive to just to just be a hater and a little boring to just to to just be to just shower a game with effusive praise. But 
uh, this game has not earned hate yet from us. This is a game with some flaws, but is really cool. Is but is so cool and interesting with with its premises that I I'm excited to play more of it. Yeah, I mean, this is RPG fan. We're not RPG haters or mm-hmm. RPG critics. So, from some of the to... from some of the fan mail we got from the early days of the podcast, you'd think we would be called RPG haters. <laughs> well, the the you know essential RPG uh, battle that y'all had. Oh, that uh, th- that was pretty tense. So. I'm... <laughs> I could see it. Yeah, I think I had to send Peter and Josh like some boxes of chocolates after that episode. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the postage to Michigan and Wisconsin was uh, you know something I hadn't encountered before. But the uh, but yeah, I think we're done talking about Vagrant Story for the time being. Uh, l- listeners, again, thank you for joining us on this journey that barely got to the first three hours of the game. We spent so much talking about the visual presentation and the combat in Vagrant Story, but I think part two will be much more story and much less mechanics. Um, but I won't know until I get there, so you'll have to wait another week. But uh, we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up in Retro Encounter. Um, in December, we are going to be playing Ghost Trick over two episodes. Those are uh, I have not started Ghost Trick yet because I still have Vagrant Story on my plate, but I love that game. I uh, I played it so, um, several years ago for the first time, but only the one time, so I'm really excited to revisit it. And we also have, in two weeks, I think, um, our quiz show episode. We, are, we had a quiz show episode in May of this year, and it was a lot of fun to record, and uh, the and, and I was interested in doing a second one, and it was pretty easy finding some other, some uh, some panelists on staff to play again. Uh, at least a couple in particular, or one in particular, told me that she was she got so mad listening to people get questions wrong that she had to volunteer for part two. <laughs> and I think you know who that is, Joe. Perhaps. So yeah, please look forward to Ghost Trick and a quiz show episode all coming in December. And uh, while you're here with us at RPG Fan. Uh, Please check out everything else the site has to offer. We have uh, RPGFan.com, the main website, and it has forums and a Twitter page and a Facebook page and an Instagram page and a Discord server and a Twitch channel with something streaming basically every day of the week with a few exceptions. So uh, And uh, and also three other fine podcasts, um, Random Encounter, which is every other week and focuses mostly on uh, randomness and current events, uh, Rhythm Encounter, which... Uh, takes place every yeah Rhythm Encounter our, our, our music podcast is on hiatus but uh, may come back yet later this year and also Phoenix Edge which is a recent addition to the RPG fan podcast family which focuses mostly on current events and is a weekly uh, show hosted, uh, hosted mostly and recorded live on YouTube so, yeah, please listen to Retro Encounter, of course, and also Ret- Random Encounter, Rhythm Encounter, and Phoenix Edge. Uh, so, Joe, if listeners want to get in touch with you directly, what's the best way for them to do so? So you can find me on uh, Twitter or on Discord as at Queers for Fears. Um, and I'm also on, you know, I'm one of the social media people. So mm-hmm. uh, you can hit us up over on Facebook or Twitter and uh, I might be the person to respond to that. Right on. And uh, for me, the easiest way to find me is probably Twitter. I am at the real monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times. I'm also Monsoon Mike on Discord and Monsoon on the forums. And if you email us, the best way to contact the podcast is email retro at rpgfan.com. 
I am typically the person responding to that email. We have a lot to talk about in part two, Joe, but uh, that won't happen for another week. We'll we'll get through it, and we'll have an entire hour devoted to talking about how much Asumi Matsuno loves class warfare. Oh yeah, there is. I mean, I mean, geez, just between this and Final Fantasy Tactics, it's. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think he has a lot of uh, sympathy for the one percent. No. No. <laughs> So uh, to the 99% out there, thank you, good night, and good luck.